Need an expert on money? There is a vital army of bankers, brokers, financial planners, insurance agents, etc., ready and willing to give you financial advice. But who can you really trust to tell you the truth about money? Dave Wurtzen, our study leader, reveals to us the ultimate financial advisor, and he is someone your secular tycoons at work would never come up with. Who is this mystery money genius? Turn to Matthew 25, 14-28, and let's find out together. A lot of you have been out in the business world. Some of the students have been taking business courses, and you get all into, you know, uh, spreadsheets and accounting factors. And, and right now, in fact, there's a whole battery. Just over maybe the last 10 years or so, there's just been an explosion in the different kinds of people that will help us. I remember when I first started out in the pastorate, there were brokers and there were accountants, and obviously there, there were CPA accountants, and there were all those kind of people that you could go to for advice. There were guys trying to sell you insurance, but now we even have the financial planner, and we have a a unique professional that can help you get all your finances together and help you prepare for the future. I mean, we've got a whole battery of people out there that want to help us with our finances, and yet I think that if I went to some of the people in your office, I went to work with you today, you know, maybe tomorrow, and at lunchtime, I went out to lunch with you, and we sat down with some of the professionals that some of you work with. I think that if I asked them, what do you think Jesus knows about finances? I think that the average unbelieving person especially would kind of scratch their head and they'd have some kind of a vague notion of this this man that 2,000 years ago walked around a dusty, very dry uh, Palestine with a bathrobe on kind of and kind of a towel over his head and he had a beard. And what he did is he went around and he taught about love and he taught about forgiveness. But when it came to the hard currency stuff, when it came to things like money, you wouldn't exactly want to go to Jesus Christ for your financial advice. I'm just trying, you know, I'm just trying to be honest. I really don't think that the average unbelieving person would think that Jesus is really up to snuff about, you know, the latest stock market figures and up to stuff with all the computer stuff that's going on and being able to keep track of financial markets. In fact, I think an unbeliever would feel that way, but I think it's very possible for me to feel that way. It's easy as we come together and we open up the page of the scripture, you know, when, when we're in the hospital, like some of you were this past week, and man, you know, life suddenly gets jarred, man, you open up that Bible, you want to read it, and it's so good to read about, you know, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me, and, and in my father's house there's many mansions, if that were not so, I would have told you, and it's so nice to use this religious Jesus talk to kind of comfort us in times of trial. But when we're going along really well and we're healthy, we're strong, and we're, we're making some money and stuff, it's easy to think that Jesus really doesn't have the goods. He doesn't really have the right stuff when it comes to that kind of, of position in our life, that kind of financial advice. And what I want to present to you, if we're going to counter the spirit of Antichrist, if we're going to counter the spirit of Antichrist, and we can't just let Jesus Christ be the one that we listen to in times of sickness, in times of great struggle and crisis, or even in times of death, or in the great turning points of our life when we're going to get married. What we need to do is we need to be willing to trust Jesus when it comes just to everyday life. I look at you as being part of an incredible group of people. I think you're an incredibly chosen, elected group, especially chosen by God. And he has moved you to believe in his son. This started way back in the first century when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and then he rose again and then 50 days after his ascension into heaven, 50 days, I mean, after those events, the Passover, and after he ascended into heaven, Jesus poured out his spirit upon a group of people just like yourself. And I believe that that Holy Spirit had been continuing to pour himself out on people like yourself because he's been moving people for almost 2,000 years now to believe in his son, for it to be immediate and real to them. Many of you have come to that moment in your life when Jesus moved you to trust him, to believe in him. And then I believe that we spend the rest of our life allowing that Holy Spirit to continually get a hold of more of the areas of our life. 
And one of those areas is the area of finances. I believe that the Lord wants to teach us, joining with the universal body of Christ that's presently alive on planet Earth, I believe he wants us to join with the first century church. Because what we have in the gospel is a chance to listen in to the early apostolic teaching as they began to take these 3,000 converts, 5,000 converts at another meeting. Man, the Holy Spirit was just multiplying this family of believers in Jerusalem and we get an opportunity to listen in on the kinds of principles that they taught you. In Acts chapter 4, the church is growing, it's exploding, and there's a very powerful businessman who has come to faith, come to believe in Jesus Christ, And he does something extraordinary in order to demonstrate that he loves the Lord Jesus and the Lord has a hold of his life, not because he has to or not because he wants to earn favor, but totally as an expression of God's grace in his life. At the end of chapter 4, we have a man named Barnabas who does something really special. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. When you have that kind of unity in the family of God, it generates this. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. In other words, they, they realized that all their possessions belonged to God. The scripture's not saying here that they gave up private property. We're going to find that in just a few minutes, that, that one of the apostles affirms the importance of private property. What it's saying, though, is that the Spirit of God has moved this entire early church family, just like he wants to move us, to understand that it all belonged to the Lord. And when a group of people start having this oneness, this this centralization in Jesus, they're willing to be very generous in the way they give of their material prosperity. Look what it says. It says, No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Notice it then say much law, much performance, much grace. So this whole early church family is caught up with the incredible pouring forth of God's grace and his gifts to them. The way that you open your heart to be able to be generous is you open your heart to God's openness. You open your heart to the joy that he wants to bring you. And that's something that a lot of you might struggle with. It's hard for us in our own human strength to think that God is bountifully pouring out his goodness to us. Satan tries to twist things around and get us to think that God really doesn't like us. God isn't really blessing us. God doesn't really, you know, isn't pleased with what we're doing. Now, when we sin, he's not pleased with us, but God's not rejecting us. The reason he wants to discipline us when we sin is because he wants to get us lined up with what's going to bring the fullest blessing to us and the fullest happiness to us. So it's grace that the early church had poured upon them. Verse 34, had this grace expressed itself very practically. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. I want you to notice, these are legitimate needs. These are not people that are freeloading. This is a group of people that have gathered together from all over the Roman world in the first century. Extraordinary things have happened in the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God has been poured out, and they're taking, they're waiting in Jerusalem. And a lot of their resources have now gone very, have kind of run out. And so everyone is kind of in this very special anticipation of the kingdom of God. They are giving to one another to help to meet these needs. And what we have described in the next verse is one illustration of how the early church believers met the needs, legitimate needs for one another. Look what it says. Joseph, a Levite, that would mean that he was part of the priesthood, A Levite was part of the Old Testament priesthood. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, sold the field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is a great guy. This is a businessman that evidently owns some land. He was evidently a Cyprus businessman. He had come to the, uh, probably the Feast of Pentecost, And evidently he was a very powerful man because he not only lived in Cyprus, but he had land in Jerusalem. And where I was raised back east in New Jersey, there would be a lot of Jewish people that lived in the Manhattan area. In fact, there's more Jews that live in the Manhattan area than live in all the state of Israel itself. And many of my Jewish friends that I went to school with as little boys, as a little boy, would have land over in Israel. 
In other words, they would be powerful business people and they would even give money and they would give, you know, they would build buildings. They would take part in the economy of Israel. Back in the first century, Barnabas represents one of those Israelite men who's powerful in business, so prosperous that he not only lives in Cyprus, but he also has land holdings in Israel. Now, what happens? He gathers together on a Sunday morning, maybe on a Saturday, because they were still more in the, in the Jewish pattern. They were also meeting from day to day in, the, in one another's homes. So there's this marvelous, it was almost like a camp, like a marvelous stirring of the spirit at a, at a summer camp that we might go to. And Barnabas hears about needs that some of the people in the congregation has. The Holy Spirit begins to speak to his heart. He says, you know, I've got some land. And boy, you know, I could sell that land and I could help to meet some of those needs. So he, the, the Spirit powerfully moves in his heart. Nobody manipulates him. Nobody gets him to do it because of guilt. It's all because of his response to God's love. Do you understand that? And he goes out and he sells this land and he brings the money to the apostles who are the leaders of the church in the first century that are teaching the inspired revelation of God. And they are the ones that in the early stages took the responsibility for getting that, those goods out to those that had need. What an incredible expression of love. How do you think the needy, some people that needed another meal or needed a place to stay or someone that needed, a, when Jerusalem started getting cold, they needed a coat to be able to stay warm at night. How do you think they felt when they learned about this business person that had sold their land in order, sold his land so that their needs could be met? Well, it generated more love. That's what happens in a church family when we begin to open ourselves up to the grace of God and are willing to give of our resources to meet the needs of another. As you respond to the Holy Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit is going to move you. Not necessarily, you might not start out at the big level, probably won't, on selling a track of land and giving it so that needs can be met. But I will be eternally grateful to my own dad for the gracious spirit that he had. As an evangelist, he was often on the receiving end of God's people's graciousness. But my dad illustrated to me from the time I was a little boy that as you responded to God's grace, you met needs. And I've told you in the past, I remember one, as a little boy, one of the real vivid pictures I have is he, he got this beautiful London fog. Somebody had given it to him. And it was, you know, at that, that time, man, that was the detective trench coat to wear, especially back east in New York. And, man, it was just perfect for my dad. Remember the little kid thinking, boy, that's really neat. Somebody gave my dad this coat. And, you know, he invited this missionary over to stay with us. And they had a meal. And the missionary reported about how God was blessed in the foreign field. And, and as they went to leave, my dad went to go get this missionary's coat. And it was a trash coat. I mean, it, was, it wasn't warm enough. It just was old. It was it was. It was you know, threadbare. I'll never forget my dad took the missionary's coat, put it back in the closet, took his brand new London fog that he just got as a gift from someone else and gave it to this missionary. Remember arguing with my dad. I said, Dad, why did you do that? God met your needs. You're not supposed to meet his needs. But my dad's attitude, he didn't even think twice about it. He just gave the coat to the missionary. Well, I want you to know that my dad lived to be 82 and my dad had one suit after another, one coat after another. That London fog wasn't the last coat that he ever had. Because it's an incredible thing when you get caught up in the spirit of responding to God's grace and you start to respond to that and you start to use your material things, whether it's property, whether it's, whether it's extra finances that you're graciously putting aside to meet special needs, the Lord begins to powerfully work in your life. Now the next chapter introduces a very sad thing that happened in the early church. Because we can think, man, they were perfect. They never did anything wrong. And here we have Barnabas, this powerful businessman, and, and he's being powerfully used of the Lord and giving generously. In chapter 6, we learn about that famous story about Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? It begins, now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, chapter 5, verse 1, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. So my, the husband and wife are working together on this. So far, so good. With his wife's full knowledge, and then it gets bad. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So we could say, well, man, he needed to give it all to God. You know, sometimes I could give a message on that. You know, Barnabas gave all the money. Ananias and Sapphira need to give all the money. Well, let's read further, because that's not the point of the story. 
It wasn't that they sold the land and they kept some of it for themselves. That's the problem. That was a little inkling that greed and selfishness was at the root of their heart, which is a very serious sin that we must root out of our heart. Look what Peter says in verse 3. Then Peter said, Peter was an apostle, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? There's the acknowledgement of private property. Every one of you have the right to your home, to your bank accounts, to your savings accounts, to your insurance policy. Acts chapter 5 is making it very clear that God has not called us as the people of God into some kind of a communism where we give up private property. Here's the great apostle Peter, and he's inspired by the Spirit of God. That's how he knows, that's how he knows what's going on here. And I'm sure Ananias just about dropped his teeth when he handed the gift to Peter, and Peter looked at it and said, this isn't all the price of the land. You lied to me. I'm sure he said it. How did you know that? Well, be very careful when you start to deal with God. He already knows everything about you anyway, and he'll expose you. It's a very foolish thing to monkey with God, to get any kind of division between God and reality in your mind. And that's one of the things that Satan will try to do. He'll try to get you to think that you can act out a part that you can act out a certain role. For example, to act out a role on Sunday morning or maybe with the young people Wednesday night or maybe with a group of adults that meet together or a group of families that meet together. Be very careful about playing a role. I'd much rather have someone that's in their interaction saying, you know, man, I'm really wrestling with this and I'm not sure God is right about this. This is what I think about it. This is what I think God thinks about it. And I'm not sure I agree with God about that. You know, God, God can handle that kind of integrity, that kind of reality in your walk with God. But what he doesn't tolerate at all is hypocrisy. He doesn't tolerate fakes. He doesn't tolerate acting out a role. Ananias wants to act in the role of Barnabas. He wants to be able to come into the church, and he wants the entire church family to be able to rejoice in what God has done, and also they'll honor him because we've learned that in the New Testament as men and women would graciously give, it brought great joy to the congregation of believers. And so Ananias wants to get all that acclaim, all that honor to himself that comes to a man or a woman that's really being used of God. But he lies about it in order to achieve it. And Peter calls him down on it and says, the land was yours when you, before you sold it, The price of the land was yours after you sold it. You had every right to bring a part of it here. But the problem here is that you lied. And you have tried to fake out the Spirit of God. I want you to know there's no fake out with the Spirit of God. And Ananias drops over dead. In the next few verses, his wife, three hours later, it says when Ananias heard this, he fell down to verse 5, and a great fear seized all those who heard it. You bet your life when somebody drops dead at church, it'll get the fear of God in all of our life, right? Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in. Evidently, news doesn't travel too quickly in Jerusalem. We'll have to ask um, Ananias and Sapphira, how is it that the news didn't get out? I don't know. We'll have to ask. Maybe we'll be home with the Lord this afternoon and you can ask him. It says, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And all she had to say was, no, it isn't. This isn't the full price, it's just part of the price, but we wanted to honor God with part of the price. We're not able to give the full price of the land. That's all she needed to say. But instead, she does the same thing as her husband. She says, yes, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at the feet of the apostles and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You say, Dave, that's a really strange story. One of the things I say is, thank God for his grace, is that he doesn't strike down dead every act of hypocrisy in his family of believers. Amen? Amen. Because I would probably be, I would be struck down dead. As I look over my walk with the Lord... It's really easy to get really judgmental about Ananias and Sapphira. But, man, I can stretch things. Mary's always on me about that. I was an evangelist's son. You know, man, I was raised. Man, you know, there were a thousand people there. 
And I've been working on that to say, man, no, we counted them. There are so many people there. Exactly. You know, that's what we need to do. So I've been guilty of, you know, hypocrisy, not telling the truth. And aren't you thankful that, God, it's not the usual course of events throughout the church age for the Holy Spirit to just strike someone dead? You say, well, Dave, why did he do it at the beginning of the early church? Because at the foundation time, it's very strategic to lay out very powerful lessons of what God is and what God desires and the importance of truth. And one of the things I want to stress to you is that this story teaches us that we must be very open and honest and tell the absolute truth in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. One of the lessons, which is not just to do with finances, although it relates to finances, the way that you use your finances tells a great deal about the truthfulness in your life. One of the most important areas in keeping accounts is absolute truthfulness. Absolute truthfulness. We've had prayers with some of the accountants in our church because they got in positions in their business where as they were going through this account, they needed to stand for what's true. They needed to stand for truth. And some of them were being challenged to bend the statistics and to bend the math and to bend the financial picture. And those are accountants know in a modern financial outlay, there's many different ways you can do that. And some of them are right on the line of what's really honest and what's not so honest. And at the early church period, the Lord drove home to us that as the people of God, we need to be absolutely honest in our accounting of our finances. And what we say with our mouth and what we testify to is exactly the truth. That's why Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives, because they lied. And there was no need for them to lie. God would have been very pleased for them to give part of the price of the land. The church would have rejoiced in that. But they wanted to get more of the acclaim than they actually deserved. And they were not operating by grace. They were operating in a system of, of, of their own pride, their own greed. I want all of you to be very careful. One of the things I would beg with you as a pastor teacher, be very, very sensitive day by day about the truth quotient in your life, about the consistency in your walk with the Lord. Don't allow there to be any, any distance between what you really say and what's really going on inside of you. If you're going through it as a child, you're developing, you learn about Jesus loves me, you come up through high school and you begin to get some questions and, and maybe you're tottering on which side you're going to go with. Don't lie about it. Don't live a double life. Don't be something on Friday night that you're not Sunday morning and vice versa. That's the worst thing you can do. It's better to be a person of integrity and truth. And the Lord will powerfully work in your life to bring you to the truth if you do that. As adults, we can talk to the kids and say, well, watch out for hypocrisy in your own life. As adults, let's watch out for the hypocrisy in our own life. And one of the things we're learning in this, in this thing is to keep absolutely truthful, authentic accounts with God. So one of the things we learn is there was a death penalty in the first century church for hypocrisy. There was a death penalty in the first century church for lying to the Spirit of God. And this is something like, as you pray quietly in your own heart, as you open your heart to the Spirit, and you let him talk to you, he'll powerfully speak to you about your deception, about your hypocrisy. In fact, one of the steps of growth in the spiritual life is, is the Holy Spirit more and more reveals the truth to you, more and more reveals what you're really like, more and more reveals what God is really like, and more and more helps you to really respond to his love and to his grace. And so in the early church, finances was so important that when someone tried to lie about what they were giving, the Spirit of God struck them down. Praise God, it's not the normal pattern throughout the church. Thank the Lord that he's very gracious and very kind, or else we would all be already home in glory. We've learned in the early church that they were like, they had family solidarity. We found out that they treated each other just like a family and they graciously gave to meet one another's needs. We've just learned about the very powerful way that the Lord worked in their life to move them to graciously meet some of those needs. We also had a warning against hypocrisy. And then as we turn to chapter 6, we find out that the early church powerfully organized to meet legitimate need within the family. Look at Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
The early church faced the same kind of problems that we face. If you're looking for a church family that doesn't ever squabble, doesn't ever fight, you're not going to find one. You're not going to be able to go back to the first century and find out a church that was perfect and never had any misunderstandings. In fact, I would challenge you, if you find a church that doesn't have any squabbles, there's no misunderstandings, nobody ever gets bent out of shape towards someone else, then please don't go there because nothing is happening. Either they've already gone to heaven and there's going to be nobody there on Sunday morning, or they are so dead that Satan could care less about the group because they're not accomplishing anything. In the days when the church family is increasing, that's what we want to be. We want to be a church family that's increasing. I want you to ask the Spirit of God to give you a passion to see him reproduce himself through your life and through the life of your church family. So many of you think of evangelism as, as the one time a year when you have special meetings and you go and get cranked up as a church family. That's not what evangelism is. Evangelism isn't just going out and inviting people to come to your church, as good as that is. But what evangelism is really, evangelism is when the good news in your life reaches out to people all around you and begins to become like a magnetic pull in your own life because you're excited about Jesus. You're excited about who he is. And you're excited about getting rid of a lot of the misunderstandings that people have about him. And you start becoming a contagious Christian because using your own personality, not trying to be like Billy Graham, not trying to be like anyone else that you might know, some TV evangelist, instead just being like yourself, you start expressing with your life and with your mouth what the reality of Jesus is meaning in your life. And you become like a magnet that pulls people to want to know about the truth of Jesus. There's nothing more exciting than starting to interact with unbelieving people like that. That's what the early church had. And that's why they were increasing greatly. We need to be praying that the Holy Spirit will have that same kind of a freedom in our own midst to help us to be contagious like that so we'll be increasing. And that's what was happening in the early church. Now, what happened then is as they were growing, they began to have a really serious problem. It arose among the widows. And there was two groups of widows. There was a Hebrew-speaking group of widows that were the native Jerusalemites. They already had their family connections. They already had people that, that, were, that were part of their extended family that were meeting a lot of their needs. But the, Gre- the Grecianized widows would probably be widows from the diaspora and women that had come to the Feast of Pentecost. And many of them would not have the same family resources right there in the city of Jerusalem. And they would have great needs. Also, it's just a a truth of human nature. When you go to give, it's a lot easier to give to people that you're really connected with. Parts of your family. People that you know really well. If you have brother-sister time together, fellowship time together, it makes it a lot easier to prepare a meal when someone's in the hospital or to minister in a special situation that they might face. If they have a car accident or something like that, it's much easier to, to know how to care for them. But we also need to reach out to people that we don't know so well, or maybe some people that are a little bit different than us. And that's what was happening in this context. The Greek-speaking widows were being left out. There was a language barrier was one of the problems. There was a a location barrier because they were probably from another part of the Roman Empire, and so they were left out. And they got really ticked off about it. Now, what did the early church do here in the book of Acts? It tells it to the apostles. The apostles said, let's get together... So the 12, that would be the 12 apostles gathered, all the disciples, all the believers, the whole church family got together. like to know where they did that. Maybe in the temple, one of the large courtyards in the temple, or maybe they called representatives from different house churches throughout the city. We'll have to ask them when we get to heaven exactly how they got the church together. And the apostles said this, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That's a very important thing. In a traditional church structure, and more and more, the traditional church structure is becoming the American structure. And it's very much of a business structure. If I was the president of a corporation, or if I was the CEO of a corporation, the buck would stop here. And what it would mean is that I need to delegate all the different areas of responsibility, but I'm the one that it filters through. I'm the one that it goes through to make it happen. 
That's the way a lot of your businesses are set up. You have chief executive officers. The idea of an executive is that they execute all the different responsibilities of the business. A chief executive officer. I want you to know that as a pastor tries to be the chief executive officer of a church, there's absolutely no way that he'll be able to pray for you the way he needs to pray for you with the other spiritual leaders in the group, the other elders in the group. No way. If he's just focused on executing all the different ministries of the church. Some of you have been raised in churches where everything has to go through the chief executive officer. If you want to get anything to happen, it has to go through the number one man. And you're used to functioning like that. I want you to share something, something else. If that's what a pastor does, there's no way he can open up this book and explain it to you on Sunday morning. Because I've been doing this for over 25 years. And I still feel like I'm just beginning to scratch the surface in what this book really has to say as the voice of God. One of the biggest struggles of my life as I grow older is not to allow all the busyness to take me away from the one-on-one time with God when I listen to him speaking to me from the word of God so that I really teach you from the word of God and not just from the word of Dave. The word of Dave's not going to do anything for you. You've got to hear the word of God. The only way that you can hear the word of God when I teach you is I've got to listen to the word of God through the Holy Scriptures. One of the amazing things about the first century apostles is that by the Spirit's wisdom, they understood that priority. When they were challenged, there was a tremendous need. When, when, when things start to go wrong in a church family, there's a tremendous burden to want to grab a hold of it and make it happen. And the apostles did not do that. They did not say, there's a problem here, and Peter didn't say to John, well, you take that table, I'll take this table, we're going to get it done. Man, this whole thing's going to come unglued if we don't get control here. They didn't do that. You know what they did? They said, listen, we're a family. You know what? You're adults. You guys, there's a problem here. This is the problem. The Greek widows are not having their needs met. So what I want you to do is, now that we're all together, you choose from among yourselves, you choose from among yourselves, some wise, godly men that can deal with this problem. Interesting enough, they chose seven Greek names. So they were probably seven Greek believers, Jewish Greek believers. Isn't that neat? And these seven men took over the responsibility. They got it all organized. They got the tables organized. They got the the collection organized. They got the distribution organized. You know what? This is an incredible thing that the early church taught us. They were a living organism, not just an institution, not just an organization. They were alive. I want you to know, you are it. You are the ones that make it happen. You are the ones that the Spirit of God wants to move through and to powerfully anoint to meet needs. And that's what the early church understood. That's why they had explosive growth, because those that were gifted to pray and to teach them The word of God, those that were were gifted by the spirit to communicate God's truth to them, didn't abandon that. They kept doing that, and that enabled the group to have the confidence to really serve the Lord. That's what the early church did. When they saw needs, they empowered one another. They worked together as a group to make it happen. You know what? When the Holy Spirit starts breathing through you like that, life becomes powerfully exciting. That's what the early church did. They powerfully organized to meet the practical needs. And they viewed it as as an organizational body, a living body, not just an institution where everything had to go through all kinds of red tape in order to get anything done. You know, interesting enough, that kind of participated management style, that kind of grassroots involvement, letting the ones that are actually going to have to facilitate it and make it happen, let them really have the input in how we make it happen, that's one of the most modern, progressive ways of management that's being taught in business seminars all over the country. And you know what? This is the first century, Acts chapter 6 of the first century. And that's the way the Spirit of God moved the congregation, not a top-down leadership but a bottom-up leadership. Right from just everyone working together in very creative point teams to accomplish specific objectives. So the early church had it, had it together in some incredible ways. How did they have the wisdom to know that this is what they needed to do? 
How did they have the wisdom to have this kind of a value structure and the generosity that they had? You know, I believed from Acts chapter 2, 42 and following that the reason they did is that from the very beginning, the apostles began to teach them what Jesus Christ taught about finances. We know that Jesus teaches us we need to care for the needy and we need to, we need, need to pray daily for our financial needs. But I think it's very possible that we don't think of Jesus as being a very practical, you know, very down-to-earth teacher when it comes to money, when it comes to finances. In truth, just the opposite is the case. Jesus told one story after another that, that highlights some principles that many of you that have gone to business seminars would find out that it's exactly what the secular world has found out by trial and error, by psychological experimentation, a lot of other ways. Let's take one of those practical principles. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. It's a famous story that the Lord told. Use it or lose it. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a story about the talents. And usually we think of this in terms of the gifts that we've received, the abilities that we've received. And it's possible that you've thought so much about the English word talent, which means the, the special gifts that I might have, a speaking gift or maybe a, a, a gift with music or something like that, that we don't think about it from the original standpoint of money. The original word talent was a specific weight measure. With a certain weight, and it was often used for a certain amount of money. So what this, this parable was originally about, and it's very obvious from the context and the way the Lord tells the story, it's about a Lord who gave a specific amount of money to his servants and asked them to use it. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. And again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. It's really a very powerful story. Very simple, very straightforward. You can, you, can just, you can just picture this master, this ancient first century master calling three of his servants and he gives five, let's say he gives uh, $10,000 to one, he gives $5,000 to another, and he gives just $1,000 to the last one. And here he says, I want you to, I'm going to go away on a long journey and I want you to use this money. And the Lord talked about the one that got the $10,000 automatically puts the money to work. He invests the money. One of the things you need to realize about finances is that you need to put money to work. You need to, you need to go after it. You have to make it happen. Those of you that know, you have to make it. We call it investments. But there's all kinds of investments that need to be made. It's not just the investing in the $10,000, but it's the organization that needs to be put in there, in where you put the investment in and what you organize. I don't know whether this guy bought a vineyard. That would have been a very common thing to do. Maybe he went out like uh, the woman in Proverbs 31 did, and he bought a vineyard. And maybe he hired several hands and, and he cleaned off the land and, and planted the, the beautiful vines. And then he produced a marvelous crop of grapes. And maybe he doubled his money in the vineyard industry. I don't know. Maybe he went into textiles. Or maybe he was a merchant. Maybe he invested his money with the guys that would go down the, into the Red Sea and then down into India, get beautiful uh, different kinds of, of material down there and different kinds of incense and all different kinds of exotic, um, aromatic kind of things. And they would bring it back and they would exchange it in the land of Israel and make a lot of money. I don't know what he did. It doesn't tell us what he did. I think there's a good reason why it doesn't. Because then we'd all say, well, I couldn't do that. What the Lord does is say that the one that had 5,000 talents produced doubled it. That's a good, good return. He doubled his money. So the one we could say, the one that got $10,000 comes back. When his master comes back, he gives him $20,000. The one that got five turns it into 10. Same way. And he uses the word they worked. They worked the investment. And it has to do with an attitude of mind. The principle here is absolutely valuable. And listen to me, because it could save, it could save the meaning of your life. A very serious thing. Some of you have an attitude that life is good, and life will work, and I need to try. In other words, your attitude as you get up in the morning is that this is a good day, 
and I want to make it happen. How many of you have ever been to sales seminars that tell you, man, look in the mirror and say, this is a good day and good things are going to happen today, right? You all have, right? Some of you have a spirit, though. Everything bad's going to happen. Now, I've got news for you. Without God, without God in the equation, if someone tells you that this is a good day and good things are going to happen to you, it's a bunch of baloney. And I could call it even stronger than that. It's just not true. And you'll start to hear this week at business, you're going to hear how, especially as people grow older, how the gas starts to just be drained out of all this idealism. And all this trying, and you're going to find people are just hanging on because life has turned, you know, the bowl of cherries has just turned into pits. That's all it is. And that's the challenge of this, this parable from the Lord Jesus. What he's saying is if you're one of his children, if you're one of his servants, then you can believe that he is good. And you can believe that if you invest and if you try and if you go out there and, and do what he wants you to do and you enjoy it with him, then you can trust him. You can trust him in the end. He'll multiply. He'll bless you. It's very important. Like, just, I can, let me illustrate in my own life. I came out here in Midlothian. Came out here in Midlothian. There were, there were eight families when we first started meeting. Ed and Corky Murray had been meeting with them. I really didn't think that hard. I didn't really think that hard about the investment we were making. But I just knew, I knew that the Lord wanted Mary and I to be here in Midlothian. I knew that this little church family that wanted to really become a church was where the Lord wanted us to be. I remember when we were starting out, man, we'd sit in a circle. And there would be like 16 chairs set up in a circle. And and then we had to make the circle a little bit bigger. There was a family named the Fouchés. They had, I think they had five kids or so. And so when they came to our church, man, our 16 suddenly jumped to say, you know, 23. And I'll never forget, man, I was rejoicing. Man, we're really growing. This is exciting, man. You know, now we've grown and our circle's a lot bigger. And man, as an as a, as a early you know, young pastor saying, man, this is going to be great. We're really going. And all of a sudden they come in, they tell us they're moving to Marshall. They're going to be gone. So just like that, man, we went from... 23, right back down to 16 again. I go, oh, brother. Man, this is terrible. You know, a lot of times while we were going through that, I went to seminaries, so I really didn't have to worry about it that much. But as I look back on it, man, we were up and down. But you know what? We just kept teaching the Word. The early group that started out said, man, all we want to do, we want to honor the Lord, we want to hear His Word, and when we hear His Word, we're going to obey it. We're going to obey it. And man, I remember like we needed to, there came a time we needed to pour a slab. We wanted to knock a wall out in the old building. And we wanted to go out and we wanted to make it twice as big. Man, which to us was incredible. How could we do that? Well, Al Bakken came up with the idea, let's all go out and haul hay. There's a bunch of hay on the ground. Let's all go haul hay. I've added it all together. We all haul the hay. It'll make us a big jump towards paying for this concrete slab. So the whole church family went out and worked and sweated. And and never forget a guy named Kemp with his big woolly beard. He was so strong, he grabbed one bale with one hand, another bale with the other hand, just whip him up, you know. Never forget doing that. It was just wild as anything. And we paid for the slab, Paul and Hay. We were working hard. Working hard. You know why we're here today? We are sitting here today, blessed of God, because people believe God is good. If you invest your talent, if you invest your talent, God wants to multiply. And I want to encourage some of you. Some of you, you're the kind of a person that doesn't believe it's going to happen. I'm not calling you not to be unrealistic. I don't want you, I want you to be realistic. But I want you to realize that if you're a person that's received talents and you're beginning to feel like, man, my talents aren't any good and my money's not any good and this group isn't any good, it's not going to happen. I want you to know whether it's an athletic team, whether it's a, it's a business team or whether it's a church team, a team that's not investing their talents, believing it's going to happen, get out. They're dead. They're going to die. Because you're either moving ahead, believing that it's good, believing that it will come through in the end, or you're going backwards. The Lord closed this little parable with the guy that got just the one talent. And he comes up to his Lord and he says, Lord, he says, I knew that you were a cruel master. You know what that tells you? It tells you what his faith commitment was to his Lord. He says, I knew you were a cruel master. Then he said this, I knew that you harvested where you didn't sow any crop. I knew that you would go in and take the benefit. You would go in and take the crop of a place where you never plowed the ground and never put the seed and never took care of it. In other words, he accused his Lord 
of being a thief, of being someone that, that just didn't run things the way they ought to be run. And he said, so what I did is I took the one talent you gave to me and I stuck it in the ground and now here's your one talent back. And Jesus in his parable said that the Lord said to that unjust servant, he said, servant, why didn't you at least take my money and give it to the bankers so that I at least would have got my interest on my money? Why did you not, why did you not just give it to the bank? Which tells us that the Lord wasn't against some of you that are in the banking industry. He's saying that that would have been a legitimate thing to do. It would have been you know, something that would have at least multiplied the money a little bit. So the Lord is justifying a proper payment of interest and a proper investment in the capitalistic system. But the Lord tells his servant, you are going to be cast out. And it says that you're going to be cast out into judgment. Very strong, very strong judgment, condemnation. Why is that? Because this story is really about our relationship with God. Some of us believe that God is the good, gracious, heavenly Father who gave his son to die for us. If he's given us his son, who's his most precious gift, how much more will he not freely give us all things? And that means that you can invest your money, you can invest your skills, you can invest your time, you can invest your talents. And you can believe that over time, God's going to multiply. And God will multiply it in a way that you can't even imagine. God will do things that you could never, never dream of in your personal life, in your family life, in your church family life, in your business. God has plans for you, and there are plans for good. The one that had got the, the big talents was the one that realized, and the Lord did an amazing thing. The Lord took from the one that only had one and gave it back to the one that had ten now, that had doubled the five to ten. He gave the talent, the guy that had only one talent, lost it completely, and it went to the one that had doubled it. Isn't that incredible? You know, that's always the way God works. If you're the kind of a person that's sitting there going, boy, I don't know if I'm going to get through. Man, I can't do anything. And you go on like that. You know what's going to happen? You're going to die. And it's very serious as I close because it actually happened. I'm going to put it right in our culture. You're not going to be here very long because you're going to get angry. And you're going to be, because you're, you're a bitter person. All you're concerned about is how t- people treat you and life is bad and life isn't good. And you're going to get knocked around a little bit, so you're going to, first of all, you withdraw from this group. At, at your work, at your work, you'll more and more pull into yourself. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to end up getting up every morning. You're going to go to the cafe and drink coffee. With a, and you're going to sit around in a circle and probably end up smoking your cigarettes. And you're going to drag through another day. You're going to go home at night and watch TV and let your, your whole brain will just shrivel up like a little shrunken prune. And then you're going to die. And when you die, hardly anybody will notice it. I mean, that's the honest-to-goodness truth. That's what's happening to people all over the place. It's what happens all over our area and all over the United States. Because it's a very serious thing. You start out with all this idealism at youth. But as you start going through life, if you're not focused on God as the ultimate master, if you're not believing that he really is good, that in the end he's really going to come through for you, you're going to lose your optimism. And as you lose that, you're going to become more and more depressed, more and more into yourself. And the neat thing about it is God doesn't want you to do that. God is right here reaching out towards you. He wants you to have that childish joy, that childish anticipation, that childish thrill. He wants you to believe. You see, if you think we're nuts, man, we're committed that we're ultimately going to be partying forever and ever and ever. I read in Zephaniah this week. You know what it says in Zephaniah? The Lord speaks about a time when he will cradle Israel. And we are included in Israel because Paul says we're sons of Abraham. Zephaniah the prophet pictures a day when we will be cradled in the Father's arms and he will sing to us. Do you realize I could put it? Do you realize that you're one day going to have a wedding celebration where God, the Lord God of heaven and earth, is pictured as getting up and singing your glory? And having a big party to honor you. And he's going, to be, he's going to be expressing his love like that to you. Isn't that an incredible picture? It says, God the Father says, I'm going to sing to my people. Man, don't you want to be Isn't that going to be incredible? What a thing to hear the almighty God singing. And you know what he's going to be singing? His love for us. 
Man, if you don't have a power, if you don't have a, a drive to invest your talent, to run all the way into your 80s and 90s, if the Lord tarries and keeps you that long, to keep on running, investing for God's glory, man, that ought to do it. And that's what Jesus wanted to teach you. If you allow Jesus to be your master, allow him to be the control of all your funds, then you cannot just invest your money in the bank, man. You go out there and venture and try, and man, you work and you Go through the ups and the downs because you know, man, you've got a good master. In the end, it's going to really come up with a glorious celebration forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we're going to use it or we're going to lose it. And I want to pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would powerfully move my brothers and sisters and myself to rejoice in the talents that Jesus has given us. Lord, I pray that we'll realize that that involves the money that we have. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help us to to put our money to use for the glory of your kingdom. I'd ask you, Lord, that we'd be able to rejoice that it's used to reach out around the world in missions. We could talk about all the investments that we can make. And, oh, Lord, I just thank you so much that your parable of the talents does involve far more than money. But I pray that we'll realize that this principle of use it or lose it, applies also to our bank accounts. And Lord, as we continue to see the very practical way, the way that you taught us about money, I pray that you would take away our misconceptions about the way that you taught, and I pray that we'll be able to read these passages during the week, that my brothers and sisters would come up with their own ideas from your spirit about how it might apply to their life. I just thank you so much for the, the reality of what you're doing in this group. And I thank you that we can counter the spirit of Antichrist, that instead of worshiping money, that we can receive money as as a gift from our Father, and then we can reinvest it, believing that he will multiply it so that we can do even more good than we'd ever dreamed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter. Box 580, Midlothian, Texas 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1 888 668 7884.